You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello and welcome to the Center for Rural Health Research Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Lloyd-Cusick. This is episode number four of our podcast series, Innovation from the Edges, where we'll be exploring the resilience and ingenuity of rural and remote communities across BC in the face of the global COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're joined by Colin Moss, counselor for the village of New Denver in the central Kootenai region of BC. In addition to a whole bunch of other roles that I'll let him describe for us in just a minute. Uh, now, with being so extensively involved in your community, Colin, I imagine you're, you've been a part of conversations uh, about how to deal with COVID from lots of angles. Um, but before we get into that, I want to say thank you, first of all, for taking the time to be with us today. It's, it's amazing to have you on the program. Um, now, just to help us kind of set the scene, I wonder if you could tell us about the village of New Denver itself. Well, first off, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, the village of New Denver is part of the Slocan Valley. We're located in the southeastern portion of British Columbia. It's got a, a history of mining that started around 1895. By the turn of the century, it was booming. It was uh, mostly silver, lead, and zinc. One interesting fact is there was more money taken out in silver, lead, and zinc in this area over 30, 35 years than all three gold rushes combined. That's how, that's how big it was. Wow. And uh, for the long, a long time, probably until, well, the 30s, the silver started to run out. But then logging probably continued in full force until 1990s, I guess. And like many small rural BC communities, or North America-wide communities for that matter, logging and mining have, for the most part, disappeared. And we are struggling to survive. Uh, there's three villages in the Slocan Valley. New Denver has about 450 people. Silverton, 200. Slocan, probably 250. So we've been pretty close-knit communities for a long time. Uh, we're used to cooperating uh, between the three villages. We have numerous outlying population pockets that... Uh, you know, go to make up that 3,500 overall population. I just want to have a, a give a small plug for New Denver as well. I saw the um, the promotional video you put out a, a couple of years ago now, anyway, for um, recruiting and retaining uh, new healthcare practitioners, if I'm not mistaken. And it's fabulous. So if um, any of our listeners want to check that out, I encourage them to do so. It is a beautiful place. Yeah, but, uh, that, that was all about uh, trying to retain our small health center and uh, recruit and retain physicians. So we created a a video. Uh, If anybody's interested, it's on our uh, Slocan Chamber of Commerce website. And uh, it pretty well shows you what the Slocan Valley is all about. And that's how how I got involved Mm -hmm. in the whole political scene is I was I still am chair of the Chamber Health Committee, and we took it upon ourselves to spearhead the physician recruitment retention campaign. And uh, the existing fire chief at the time had been fire chief for 25 years. So he and I spearheaded this campaign, and 
along the way, we decided we would be much more effective if we were elected officials. And so he ran for mayor and I ran for councillor. And lo and behold, here we are. <laughs> so an origin story from, um, you know, health services activism. It's perfect for, for our program. Yeah, that's right. That's how it happened. So, I mean, you've mentioned a, a couple of roles now. I know you're all, you said you're a counselor. Um, and in previous conversations, I've heard you, you're quite extensively involved in, in, in New Denver and surrounds. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of tell us a little bit about um, the kind of, you know, organizations you're involved with in your community. Oh, yeah, I can. <laughs> We've got enough time. I originally got involved with the Chamber of Commerce. I've been a, a board member and committee chairs probably the last eight or nine years. As a uh, byproduct of my involvement in the, on our Chamber Health Committee, we joined the BC Rural Health Network, which is a BC-wide network of health-related groups and municipalities that support their local health centers and, and health activist groups. So I'm now the membership chair on the BC Rural Health Network, as well as being a New Denver councillor. I'm a director on our regional district board. So with that comes serving on the waste resource recovery boards, hospital boards. I'm now on the emergency operations committee, and we've just formed a local citizen group, cross-section of citizens. We call ourselves the Community COVID mm. Action Team, or CCAT. Probably a few more. Oh, Hospital Auxiliary, I'm a member of that too. So so it's uh, it's pretty easy mm-hmm. to get involved in a small community. Like yeah, and this. I mean, um, you're going to have um, you know quite a good sense of how your community has been changing, I'm sure, over the past couple of months when COVID's been you know, a little bit more at the forefront of everyone's minds and we're changing our lives to kind of adapt to it and the way we live. From your perspective anyway, how has COVID changed the experience of living in New Denver? Like how, how has the community changed? And as a second half to that, um, you know, we've been under COVID for, I don't know, three, three and a half months or so now. People are adjusting. People are uh, getting used to kind of the new normal. And I'm curious how people have evolved uh, in terms of that new normal in New Denver. Yeah, it's funny. And a lot of times people ask me how my life has changed. And I've I've got an outdoor property management landscape business. And in a small semi-remote setting like this, social distancing comes pretty easily. We're, we're used to doing that. We don't have too many lar- occasions where we gather in large groups. Some of our big events like our May Day's celebrations, our fall garlic fest, which is pretty big for us. They've all been canceled. So for a small village fighting for its life financially, most of our businesses are, are tourism related and they make make or break themselves in the summer, summer months. So it's really a hardship on small businesses here. People for the most part here are really adapting. They're practicing COVID protocol as recommended by the province and the federal government. So that hasn't been a problem. People have really adapted well here. There's an overall background feeling of anxiety, as I'm sure there is all over the world. Things are changing daily and have been up to now, and we see no end in sight. None of us have ever lived through this before. It's an experience none of us have had. I think it's pretty well recognized now and accepted here that we have to 
get used to thinking outside the box and be prepared to do and try new things. And people of this valley before, we've been faced with wildfires, flooding, imminent closures of our health center. We're used to the three villages and outlying areas pulling together. So in some ways, something we've seen and done before with a new slant to it, of course. And um, I just want to come back for a second. You mentioned you're part of a community uh, COVID action team. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what that looks like and, and what kind of you know, initiatives uh, you've been uh, working on with that team. Yeah, we've got a community Facebook page, and we've noticed that so many people were wanting to help, were wanting to do something, were wanting to volunteer, and use the skills they had. And so a few of us got together and thought, We've got to direct these volunteers. We've got to give them something to do. We've got to coordinate them. And so we met, probably seven or eight of us, decided on some projects that we thought would be a good fit for the present situation, reached out for funding from different sources. Our hospice society graciously decided that they would act as a sponsoring society because we have to have a society in order to apply and disperse funds. And before long, we, we had pretty substantial funding for this area. So we embarked on a few projects. Uh, one of our first projects was partnering with a local sewing and yarn shop and local quilting group and volunteers to make and distribute masks. And our local pharmacy acted as a uh, distribution point as well. And before long, we had sold, or not sold, but by donation, I guess, probably 250 masks. We raised close to $2,000 for our graduating class and local food hamper. And given the population of Denver, that's, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, in perspective, it's, it's a pretty big yeah. deal here. We got a pretty big list of volunteers that are willing to help out and They'll pick up groceries and prescriptions and deliver them. And we had no trouble. I put together a three-day event at our local grocery store to distribute these masks. And I bet you within two hours, I had three days filled up one-hour positions. And people are eager to to help and do something. Uh, We've helped to fund a... Chamber of Commerce business support outreach program we're just getting going now, basically where we contact local businesses and see how they're doing and try and direct them to sources of of help and funding. So we're involved in that. Another one we're just getting going on is uh, building planter boxes complete with soil and delivering them to people's houses because people are becoming concerned about food chain, food supply, production. We'll probably keep this thing going until we see where the whole COVID thing is going to take us anyway. And you touched on something kind of interesting there um, in terms of an emerging new concern. As we've been enduring the new social distancing protocols and kind of the shutting down of businesses and things, I think that our concerns have evolved over time as well. Um, You know, initially it was probably more concern around uh, you know, immediate physical health and things like that and getting through the next month or something. Uh, but now it's it's a little bit, people are understanding, you know, much more deeply, this might really change the way we live for some time. And you touched on food supply. Uh, and I'm wondering, um, 
are there other kind of emerging concerns you're getting a sense of at this point in, in our response? And um, how are you, you know, as part of the uh, community COVID action team and also maybe you know, the new, new Denver City Council, seeing the responses to those kind of emerge? Yeah, well, actually, the whole the food uh, supply security issue and concern is fast becoming a basin-wide issue, not specifically here, but more the East Kootenai migrant workers, for instance. The harvesting of the crops depends on them and, you know, just trying to make that work and wondering if they're, if this continues or gets worse, are they going to be able to cross borders or, or how long are they going to have to be quarantined for, things like that. So far, locally, there isn't a food shortage, but people are starting to get worried now about what's happening in the U.S. and uh, mm. and is that going to affect our food supply? And for some time now, people have wanted to support local farmers and market gardeners. Luckily, market gardens are still allowed to stay open, which is a big thing. It gives local producers a, a place to sell their product. So that's a good thing. As far as food supply security, it's becoming a basin-wide issue. Has there been a lot of coordination between, you know, uh, your municipality and others and just regionally on the, on the food supply issue? Yeah, mostly through regional district initiatives. Our three villages valley-wide are, are used to cooperating together. They have for 100 years, and our local chamber of commerce covers the whole valley, all three villages so we're used to cooperating. So it's it's unfolding for sure, but it's it's a real concern, and and we're working on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, another emerging concern is uh, you know now that we're past the the May long weekend, which a lot of people would, would consider to be kind of the start of the summer season. A lot of smaller communities across BC would expect an influx of of visitors and tourists and people who maybe have seasonal homes and things. Have you actually seen that happen yet at all in New Denver? And, uh, you know, what's your impression of the kind of the local feeling about visitors coming through town? It is an issue. Our camp, our municipal campground up till now, you know, has been a major generator of village funds and it's it's been shut down. Now we're we're just opening it up a little bit for completely self-contained campers because our bathrooms and other facilities aren't open. We hope to open it up fully by mid-July. Probably 50% of our population leaves in the winter. It's got quite a absentee owner community, mostly Albertans, people from the Okanagan, some from the coast with second homes here. For years, they've come back in the summer. They've become part of the community. They've made friends here. They pay taxes. It's their home. And our attitude, for the most part, is they're, they're welcome residents here. Until the provincial government enacts some kind of legislation that prohibits interprovincial travel, people have to accept that. They may not like it. They may feel that an influx of well, absentee owners for one part, and then tourists is going to put a unnecessary strain on our you know, facilities here. We have a small health center. We've got a 28-bed extended care wing, um, and they are valid concerns. But uh, we pretty well accept absentee owners and tourists as we have in the past. I've spoken to quite a few of them, and they're all practicing proper COVID protocol. They are 
quarantining when they come and practicing distancing. Our local grocery store has been great. I mean, you can phone in your order. Somebody, one of our volunteers will pick up their groceries and deliver to them. Same with the pharmacy while they're quarantining. So me, I, I haven't seen a real problem. I mean, you're always going to get that segment of a community, a very small segment that are just plain unhappy, malcontents and always will be. Looking ahead a little bit, what are you thinking about as, you know, as a province, we look at potentially uh, kind of an ongoing extension of, of social distancing or maybe even a phased reopening, hopefully in the not too distant future. Uh, what are the, some, of, some of the things you're considering in terms of managing that transition? Well, that's a tough one, of course. Um, you know, as a small, semi-remote rural community, and I've mentioned we're, we're already fighting for our economic survival. Some of these businesses were probably right on the brink before. And now, going forward, depending how this or this COVID issue works out, I mean, if some of these businesses or restaurants are restricted to maybe 50% of their past clientele and income because of distancing required or reduction in hours, the feeling is that could be enough to make it so these businesses can't survive or reopen. Our local credit union closed down and, uh, you know, due to a lot of uh, hard work by our mayor, uh, they've opened for two days now. This area's got a reputation for social activism. We're well known for that and credit to the, the credit union for, for opening as much as they can now. So it's that's a real concern is smaller businesses, restaurants, the strain on them going forward just... Well, being able to phase in a recovery may not be enough. Um, a lot of people are concerned. They liken it to the, the 1918 flu epidemic, where the first wave population relaxed its restrictions and the second wave hit and was by far the more virulent. And that's in the back of a lot of people's minds here. Just how much are people willing to risk the lives in our of patients, people and residents in our extended care center, because obviously those have been the hardest hit. And so it's a real catch-22, and there's no easy answers to that one. I have one more question for you, and it kind of extends out of that. Uh, something that I'm asking all of our guests we have on, and you know, we've been confronted with kind of a, a new level of uncertainty uh, about the future and in our communities and beyond. And it's easy to feel worried and vulnerable about what's in store. But I want to ask you, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is, and it sounds corny, but throughout history, the indomitable spirit of mankind. I mean, we are masters at rethinking ourselves and adapting to change and coming up with new ideas and solutions and a lot of us have never had to do that on this scale, but as a species, we've done it before. And on a smaller local level, we've done it a lot over the last 50 years here. And so that gives me hope. We're used to working together as a community. Granted, as a small rural community, we realize there is a lot, there are a lot of things out of our control. So we've basically just got to pull together, do the best we can and wait and see what happens because we don't know number one and number two chances are we won't have control over it so rather than spend all our time worrying we get out and do 
the best we can with what we have and hope for the best. Prepare for the worst, expect the best. No more fitting uh, phrase than now. And on that note, uh, I want to thank you so much, Colin, for taking the time to chat with us today. We really appreciate uh, you know sharing the stories and insight. And for our listeners out there, you can find this recording and future episodes on the Center for Rural Health Research website at crhr.med.ubc.ca or just type CRHR and UBC into Google and we'll pop up. Uh, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify if you search for CRHR or the Center for Rural Health Research. Uh, thanks for listening and stay safe out there. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 